You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, The Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 8. I would like to bring forward again, in a, different, in a rather different form, a few remarks made in the course of our studies. You know that the fact of the intimate relation between man and the universe was much more easily accessible to the perception and knowledge of the ancients than is the case in our present day. If we were to go back to the period of Egypto-Chaldean culture, we should find that man did not look upon himself as a separate being who simply walks about on the earth, but as a being belonging to the whole universe. He knew, of course, to begin with, that in a certain sense he was dependent upon the earth. That can easily be observed. Even our own materialistic age admits that as far as our physical metabolism is concerned, we depend upon the earth's products, which we assimilate. But in those ancient times, by means, of course, of atavistic perception, man knew himself to be dependent also in his soul on the one hand on the elements of fire, water, and air, and on the other hand on the movements of the planets. These he related to his soul nature in the same way as he related the products of the earth to his physical metabolism. And the part of the universe that is outside or beyond the planetary system, all that is in the starry heavens, this he connected with his spirit. Thus, in those past ages, when there was no thought of materialism, man knew himself to be living in the bosom of the universe. You may now say, yes, but how is it that people of those times made such big mistakes about the movements of the heavenly bodies, while today, in this materialistic age, we have made such magnificent progress in relation to the real truth of these movements? Well, we have been speaking of these things for some time, and we have seen that people's belief about the movements of the heavenly bodies, based on what science asserts, derives from certain prejudices. Upon this subject I shall have more to say tomorrow, but for the moment we may remind ourselves that modern man has entirely lost consciousness of the fact that what belongs to our whole constitution can no more be discovered in the physical world than in the visible stellar world. For it is absolutely impossible to gain a true perception even of the visible starry heavens unless we combine the superphysical with outer physical life, that superphysical part of our life through which we pass between death and rebirth. 
Yesterday we drew attention to the metamorphosis that takes place in us through this alternation between earthly and super-earthly life and showed how the organs which we consider as belonging to our lower realm and of which we said yesterday that they open inward transform themselves as regards their forces though obviously not in their substance during the period between death and a new birth and become what is considered to be the more noble head organism. This latter is in reality nothing more than the metamorphosis as regards the structure of its forces of our so-called lower region from our last earth life. If we really think this matter over, we can see in spirit how between death and rebirth man has a certain content within him of his experiences, as he has also here between birth and death. But the content is essentially different in each case. We may make this difference clear by saying, between birth and death we have space as the circumference for our experiences and also what takes place in time. We inhabit space and time. You know in how small a degree people really experience the processes within their inner organism. They are not conscious of them, being much more aware of what is outside them. Everything within the skin is known to man only indirectly and incompletely. The knowledge gained through anatomy and physiology is not real knowledge, for we do not thereby learn to look into our actual interior. It is an illusion to believe that we do. Spiritual science alone gradually reveals all that is within man. But what happens between death and a new birth? In a certain sense we look then from the periphery to the center, and we then know just as little of the periphery as we do here of our center or interior. During this period we have instead a direct perception of the secrets and mysteries of man himself, that which is hidden within us, within our skin, becomes observed experience for us between death and a new birth. Now, perhaps you will say that this world which we observe during the time between death and rebirth must be a very small one indeed. But spatial dimensions do not count at all. It is the fullness or poverty of the content that matters, not the size. If we combine all we observe in the mineral, plant, and animal kingdoms, and add thereto the starry heavens, it would not compare in richness with the mysteries within man himself. The real process is approximately as follows. We lose the structural forces of the head when we pass over into death. They have completed their task. Power takes up the formative forces of the remaining lower organism, which, from being inner experience, belong now to the periphery, and transforms them in such a way that when the time is ripe, the spiritual world fashions them into the human head in the womb of the mother. We must be absolutely clear upon this point, 
the very first beginnings of the physical human being that develop within the mother are produced by the whole cosmos. Conception is merely the opportunity given for a certain cosmic activity to penetrate the human body. And what forms first in the process of human embryonic development is indeed an image of the whole cosmos. Those who wish to study the human embryo from its first stage onward must consider it as an image of the cosmos. These matters are almost entirely overlooked today. For of what do we generally think when we speak of the origin of a human being in the physical sense? Of heredity. We observe how the child organism is formed within the parent organism, and we are ignorant of how the cosmic forces which surround us are active within the parent organism. We are ignorant of the fact that the whole macrocosm endows the human being with its forces in order to make possible the genesis of a new human being. Of course, the great fault of the modern outlook is that we never take the macrocosm into consideration and therefore never become conscious of the origin of the forces whose effect we observe. I must once again remind you of the following. The modern physicist or chemist says that there are molecules which are composed of atoms, that the atoms possess forces by means of which they act upon each other. Now this is a conception which simply does not accord with reality. The truth is that the minutest molecule is acted upon by the whole starry heavens. Suppose here is a planet, here another, here another, and so on. Then there are the fixed stars which imbue the molecule with their forces. All these lines of force intersect each other in various ways. The planets also transmit their forces in the same way, and we come to realize that the molecule is nothing but a focus of macrocosmic forces. It is the ardent desire of modern science to bring microscopy far enough to enable the atoms to be seen within the molecule. This way of looking at things must cease. Instead of wishing to examine the structure of the molecule microscopically, we must turn our gaze outward to the starry heavens. We must look at the constellations and see copper in one, tin in another. It is out there in the macrocosm that we need to behold the structure of the molecule that is only reflected in the molecule. Instead of passing into the infinitely small, we must turn our gaze outward to the infinitely great. For it is there we have to look for the reality of what lives in minuscule processes. This materialistic conception of things also affects other domains of thought. Someone who considers himself capable of giving an opinion on the progress of human knowledge may say, 19th century materialism is now overcome. But it isn't. It is not overcome, so long as people still think atomistically, so long as they fail to search in the wider universe for the form and configuration of the small. Neither is the materialism relating to humanity overcome so long as we continue to ignore the connection of man, the microcosm, with the macrocosm. 
And at this point, we encounter a new, I might say a monstrous, evidence of materialism, to which I have previously drawn attention. It is in so-called theosophy that its traces are often to be found, where a tendency is present to look at things in the following way. Here we have matter, then ether, thinner than matter but otherwise similar to physical matter. Then comes the astral, again thinner or finer than the etheric. And after that quite a number of other beautiful things, all thinner and thinner and thinner. Call it astral world, kama manas, or what you will, it is not spiritual, but remains materialistic. The truth is that in order to arrive at a real understanding of the world, we must conceive of heavy, ponderable matter as ceasing at the ether level. For we must clearly understand that this ether is essentially a very different thing from that substance of which we speak as filling space. When speaking of this latter substance, we think of space as filled with matter. But this we cannot do when we speak of ether, for then we must conceive space as being empty of matter. When ordinary matter strikes some other object, the object is repelled or pushed away. When ether approaches an object, it attracts it and draws it into itself. The activity of ether is the exact opposite to that of matter. Ether acts as an absorbent force. Were this otherwise, you would present the same appearance back and front. For even in this diversity of the physical appearance of man, we have the result on the one hand of the pressure of ponderable matter and on the other of the absorbing action of ether. Your nose is forced outward, as it were, from your organism through the pressure of matter, while the eye sockets are drawn inward through the action of ether. It is therefore simply a pressing and absorbing substance acting within you which differentiates the exterior appearance of your front and back. These are things which are not usually taken into consideration. Further, when we come to speak of the astral, we must not think of three-dimensional physical matter extending in a threefold way in space, nor must we think of the absorbent ether, but of a third factor, one that forms the adjustment or connection between the other two. And should we then go on and attempt to form some approximate idea of that part of our being, termed the ego, the I am, we would have to include a fourth factor, which acts as mediator between, on the one hand, the absorbent, repelling action of ether and physical matter, and on the other hand, the astral substance. These are the things that must be taken into consideration. If the ether has merely a sucking, absorbing action, you might ask, how then is it possible for us to perceive it? But this would be a misapprehension. The fact is, ether stands, figuratively speaking, in the same relation to ponderable matter, I am speaking metaphorically now, as the relation we find in another plane if we have a bottle of soda water. We may not see the transparent water in the bottle, but the pearly bubbles we can see, although these are, in quotes, thinner than the water, and so ether, which is, 
an absence of physical matter, and therefore its essential antithesis, can in fact be perceived. From the foregoing you will now see that it is necessary, when speaking of the life between death and rebirth, to realize that this life has actually lived beyond space, beyond the space of which we are aware on the earth plane. And we shall have to endeavor to gain a conception of this beyond of space. You can best do so by trying first to imagine filled space. Take, for instance, a table. It fills or occupies space. Then you pass from filled space to empty space, and perhaps you would say that you cannot go beyond this. But as I have previously pointed out to you, this would be about as sensible as to say, I have a full purse out of which I continue to take money till nothing is left. This nothing cannot be less than it is. But it can be less if you get into debt, when you have when you would have less than nothing in your purse. Similarly, empty space can be less than empty by being filled with ether, when it becomes a negative entity. And what mediates between the two, what also mediates within you between forces of pressure and suction, is the astral. No relationship would exist between the front and back of a human body did not the astral activity within form the connection between the effects of suction and pressure. You will say, I do not observe this connecting element. But try to follow the digestive process, and you will find the connecting link very very clearly manifested. The astral is active there, and its activity is based upon the contrast between the front and back nature of the human being even as the astral mediation between our higher head realm and lower limb realm depends upon the ego. We must therefore consider man, as he stands before us, in a quite concrete manner, and make clear to ourselves that while he has existence upon this plane between birth and death, he imprints his astral nature and his ego in what absorbs and what exerts pressure. But when he dies, he carries his being back to what only manifests here on earth as the mediator between front and back, and between his upper and lower realms. Now, what is this mediating or connecting link? It is what we experience within us when we feel our equilibrium. We do not jerk the head forward and backward. We stand and walk erect. We accommodate our posture to the demands of the laws of equilibrium. We cannot see this, but we experience it inwardly. When we pass through the gate of death, we consciously adjust ourselves to this condition, of which here we take no heed. If we possessed eyes only, it would then be dark around us. And if we had ears only, stillness would envelop us but we have also the sense of balance and the sense of motion, and so we become able, after all, to experience things after death. And experiences in quotes. We take part in that which on earth is implied in the words, quote, in quotes, balance and in quotes, movement. We adapt ourselves to the movements of the external world. We find our way into them. 
You see, here in the life between birth and death, the only way we experience the activity of the earth's rotation upon its axis is in our daily metabolic process. We must take our daily meals, and this, together with the succeeding digestive processes, takes place within a 24-hour cycle, uniform with one revolution of the earth. These two things belong together. The one is proof of the other. When we die, the revolution of the earth becomes something real to us, as real as are the visible objects here. Then we live in this terrestrial motion. We begin to experience this motion consciously. There are also other motions connected with the starry heavens, all of which we experience after death. Correctly considered, we do not expand into the cosmos like a jellyfish, but we take part in the life of the cosmos. And as beings taking part in cosmic life, we experience at the same time the interior of the human organism. Between birth and death we say, My heart is within my breast, and in it converge the streams or motions of blood circulation. At a certain stage of development, between death and rebirth, we say, In my inner being is the sun, and by this we mean the actual sun, which the physicist claims to be a ball of gas, but which is in reality something quite different. We experience the actual sun in the same manner as we experience our heart here on earth. Here the sun is visible to the eye, EYE, whereas during the time between death and rebirth, the evolution of the heart on its path to the pineal gland, as it undergoes a wonderful metamorphosis, is the cause of sublime experiences. I'm going to read that sentence again. Here the sun is visible to the eye, whereas during the time between death and rebirth, the evolution of the heart on its path to the pineal gland, as it undergoes a wonderful metamorphosis, is the cause of sublime experiences. We experience the complete system of our blood circulation, the forces at work in it, that is, not the substances as such. As existence between death and rebirth proceeds, these forces undergo transmutation, so that when, once again, we come to be born on earth, they become the forces of our new nervous system. Look at the plates and illustrations scattered through modern books on anatomy or physiology, and examine the circulatory system of the blood in one incarnation. In the next incarnation this becomes what lives in the nerves. We must not think of the head, breast, rhythmic and limb systems too schematically, as separate from one another, for they interpenetrate each other. Note the wonderful structure of the human eye, Iwahi. There we find blood vessels, choroid and retina, omentum. The last two are transformations of each other. What today is retina was in the last incarnation choroid, and what is choroid today will be retina in the next incarnation. Of course, this must not be taken too literally, but this gives an approximate idea of things. So, you will understand that we cannot gain true understanding of man 
if we merely study him as he appears between birth and death, or even along the lines by which he develops through the forces of physical heredity. For this will at most only allow us insight into the circulatory system and nothing more. The nervous system of the present life is a result of a former life and can never be understood if studied in connection with the present life alone. Now, my dear friends, I beg of you not to to object to what I have explained by saying that animals also have a nervous system, although they have no former lives. Such an objection would indeed be very short-sighted. For though the forces of the human nervous system are the metamorphosis of the blood circulation of a former life, that does not imply that the same applies in the case of animals. It would be just as logical to go to a barber and ask him to sell you a razor for the dinner table, a razor being a knife and knives forming part of the dinner service. Razors, however, do not. Nothing carries within itself its immediate purpose. Neither does a physical organ. The human organ is entirely different from the animal organ. It depends upon the use to be made of an organ. We should not compare the human nervous system with that of an animal, but rather observe the fact that human nerves have become similar during the course of their evolution to animal nerves, just as the razor has a certain similarity with a table knife. This once more shows that when people follow the ordinary materialistic line of investigation, they can arrive at no true conclusion. Yet that is the path, of course, which is generally followed today. It is this kind of method that prevents us from arriving at a conception of man as a product of the spiritual world. Our religious creeds, as they have gradually developed, have really been over-subservient to human egoism. It may almost be said that their one and only aim is to convince their followers of a continuation of life after death, because the egoism of humanity demands it. Yet it is equally important to prove that this life was preceded by a prenatal life. Then people can say, here upon this earth I have to be a continuation of what I was between death and my present birth. I have to continue a spiritual life here on this plane. This is not so likely to gratify our egoism. But it is something that our civilization needs to become aware of, so that humanity can extricate itself from its anti-social instincts. Try to imagine what it will mean when we can look upon a human countenance and say, that is not of this world. The spiritual world has been at work upon it between the last death and this birth. For a time will come when we shall see within the material the imprint of this spiritual work between death and rebirth. A very different kind of culture will then guide humanity, and it will bring in its train very different convictions and tendencies of thought which will not countenance any idea of the cosmos as a vast machine set in motion by Newtonian forces of attraction between the stars. This kind of abstraction has already reached its zenith. Abstraction is deeply rooted in our ordinary conception of the planetary system, 
and it produces some very strange results nowadays. For example, a great deal of popular literature is permeated with glorification of an idea which originates from Einstein. This idea is said to have shaken the theory of gravity. Imagine that far away from all celestial bodies, so that any interference from a gravitational field may be excluded, there is a box. Inside it is a man who holds a stone in one hand and some down feathers in the other. He lets go of both and, see, they begin to fall, and fall until they reach the ground in this box. Yes, says Einstein, people will no doubt say that the stone and the down both fall to the ground, but it need not be so, for up above a rope may be fastened, where or how I have no idea, and by some means or other the box is drawn up. The stone and the down, owing to the absence of any celestial body, do not fall, but remain where they are. When the bottom of the box reaches them, it takes them up with it. This kind of extreme abstraction can be found in the modern theory of relativity which Albert Einstein has propounded. Just think how far humanity has strayed from actuality. We can talk of relativity, well and good, but just imagine what would happen were this picture taken in earnest. A box, some inconceivable distance away from any celestial body that might attract, by gravity, the stone and the down, and inside this box a man, air is only, of course, is found, of course, in the neighborhood of heavenly bodies, excuse me, Air is only found, of course, in the neighborhood of heavenly bodies, but the man is quite happy and content. As for his stone and his down, they, of course, need no air. And now the box is suspended from outside and is then lifted up. All this is a further development of the theory of Newton, who postulated a push or impetus imparted to a globe at a tangent so that centrifugal combines with centripetal force. Such things as these actually form the contents of scientific discussions today and are considered great achievements, whereas they are nothing more than a testimony to the fact that we have arrived at the most extreme abstraction and that materialism has produced a state of complete ignorance in humanity as to what matter really is and caused people to live in a series of mental pictures far removed from all reality. But, my dear friends, no consideration is given to these things nowadays, and we find our newspapers proclaiming that a new discovery has been made. The theory of gravity has been replaced by the theory of inertia. The stone and down are not attracted. They remain in their original place, perhaps only because we can manage to imagine such a thing, while the box is raised. One can truly say that so much nonsense masquerades as genius today that it becomes difficult to distinguish the one from the other. Can we wonder that people's ideas have gone haywire in many other areas of thought as well? And that this has finally resulted in what has happened in the world over the last five or six years? These are things we need to keep reminding ourselves of. Today I needed to remind you of all this, and tomorrow... I will add something further concerning the structure of the universe. The end of Lecture 8